We're moving through three chapters of Second Kings, and uh, the, the passage, it really is the day before destruction. Uh, at least it feels that way, because the next chapter, chapter 17, uh, Israel are destroyed. And so this is the lead-up. This is the lead-up. Uh, and the thing is, in this passage, life goes on, uh, and yet we know it all ends tomorrow. And so the thing you wonder is, what were the signs? What would you have seen the day before? Uh, And what's startling about this passage is that you don't really get what you expect. You read it and you think, what is God doing here? What was the plan? Uh, In 2019, a CBS story came out titled, Disturbing Video Shows Driver Apparently Asleep at the Wheel of a Moving Tesla on the Highway. And there's a, there's a kind of an image from the video there. And you can kind of see someone apparently asleep at the wheel. Um, the state police comment was not reassuring. They said, technically there's no law against falling asleep at the wheel of a driving car. <laughs> uh, of course, Tesla said it was a prank, which, I don't know, could be true. Well, the point is that um, people have accused God of this same thing. Uh, you know, Grey's Anatomy uh, character April uh, is well known to have said... Uh, God is asleep at the wheel, and humanity is locked in the trunk. And often when people look out at the world, they say the signs are that no one is running anything. There is no method to the madness. The good get hurt, the bad get blessed, and people say, God is not good, God is not in control. In today's passage, you kind of have the same feeling. Uh, You do wonder what God is doing as you read through these chapters. The day before destruction, you expect the ungodly to be suffering, languishing, uh, but instead, they're doing really well. They're doing really well. And so let's, let's uh, turn to understanding our passage, which, which is a kind of calm before the storm. Um, as I said, next week, they, they get destroyed. Um, but these three chapters, uh, you know, we, we, we trace them and we trace Israel. There's an intertwining of Israel uh, and Judah. Um, and I'm just going to focus on Israel. We're not going to look at the Judah passages, uh, just so we can move through it a bit more quickly. Um, but in a nutshell, the, the message from the accounts of Judah through this period are that they're no better. Uh, that they're a little bit better, but they're really no better. And uh, in the fact that they're not destroyed as well uh, has more to do with God's faithfulness than it does theirs. And yet, of course, we know their time for exile will come later. But today, uh, we're going to look at these two accounts. We just read two kind of passages out of Second Kings, and uh, they kind of are good representations of what's happening. Uh, and so we'll look at them. Um, and the thing we want to know is, uh, is what are the signs of this destruction which are coming? So follow along your outlines. Firstly, the sign of success. What were these signs? Um, what could you have looked at to see the destruction coming? Um, well, what about the sign of success? Uh, for as we'll see, the day before destruction, Israel was famously successful. Success came to Jeroboam, son of Joash. Uh, so in chapter 14, verse 23, it says, In the, fir- in the 15th year of Judah's king, Amaziah, son of Joash, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, became king of Israel in Samaria and reigned 41 years. So the king comes. Now, uh, in case you got confused, there are two Jeroboams. It's, uh, I'm sorry for the Bible's naming. It's, uh, it's not as clear as it could have been. I've got some suggestions for God next time he writes a Bible. 
but there are two Jeroboams. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, is the one that you hear of all the time. He's the one who opened the door to idolatry. Uh, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, is the current king of Israel in today's chapters. And he's the one who had great military success, as we see in verse 25, which says, He restored Israel's border from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord. The God of Israel had spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, uh, son of Amittai, from Gath Hefer. Jeroboam, son of Joash, is uh, fabulously successful, is what that just said. (laughs) I have a bit of a a map here, I think, of uh, his military campaign. So you can see uh, this was Israel before on the left, and then. he was. He was so. He gained. He took over all of that land, and that was that was a ram. If you remember, a few weeks ago, Hazael, uh, the the terrible terrible Syrian king, and uh, God's prophet wept over the the terrible pain that he would cause Israel. And here, um, here's Israel takes them over again, um, which which is fascinating. Like he 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 was so successful, um, and, and you do wonder how this could be. How, how was it that he was that he managed to do this at this late hour. Well, verse 25 says, God spoke this word through a prophet. Uh, and we don't know who the prophet was. Jonah, we have his name, but that's all we know. Um, God decreed that he would bless Israel at this time. Why? Why does God do this? Why does he bless them? Was it because of their faithfulness towards God? Well, no. Verse 24 tells us that Jeroboam, son of Joash, uh, it says, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not turn away from all the sins. So why does God bless them here at this hour? It's clearly not their faithfulness to God. Well, it was God's compassion. It was God's compassion. Uh, 14 verse 26 says, For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. There was no one to help Israel, neither bond nor free. However, the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel under heaven. So he delivered them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. So God was moved uh, out of compassion and faithfulness for his people. God saw their affliction under, under Hazel. As I said, remember, he was a terrible uh, oppressor of them. Um, he, God saw this affliction. He saw how bitter it was. And um, God saw that there was no one to help them. Verse 26, there's this interesting description. It says there was neither bond nor free uh, which is a way of saying not even, not even a slave was on their side. No one. They had no ally. Um, and why? Well, they had turned to false gods. They had deserted Yahweh who loved them. And yet God sees their pain and cannot help but reach out his caring hand towards them. As a father to a lost child, his heart cannot help but come to the rescue. Brothers and sisters, this is your God. This is your God. Your Father in heaven is so, so loving. Even the day before destruction, he cannot help but reach out and help. If anyone perishes uh, by, the, by the fires of hell, if any on that day perish, it will be because they provoked and they provoked and they provoked God. And even in the final hour, they still provoked God. Because God loves and he loves and he loves And even here in this final hour, he loves. 
So God gives them victory. And they prospered. They did really, this is the fascinating thing, Israel did really well at this very late stage. The prophets give us a, a fascinating picture of the wealth of Israelite society at this time uh, from Amos. Amos was a prophet active at that time. Amos says, They lie on beds inlaid with ivory, sprawled out on their couches, and dine from lambs from the flock. The calves from the stall, they improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. I don't know what your bed's made out of. Mine's a, it's kind of uh, MDF with, with this white paint which is always flaking off. It's hardly inlaid with ivory. This sounds like a pretty good description, I have to say. Um, good coffee, you know, brunch at nice cafes. Uh, it mentions some lamb there, some nice roast lamb. And I think, is that improv jazz? I see improvised songs, some improv harp. Um, but this, of course, is Amos the prophet. You know what's coming if you've read the prophets, don't you? You know what's around the corner. These prophets, they are, they're kind of pagan party poopers, I'd say, something like that. They, they really are killjoys. Amos continues, uh, They drink wine by the bowlful and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Joseph here is referring to the, the nation of Israel. Verse 7 says, Therefore they will now go into exile as the first of the captives and the feasting of those who sprawl out will come. To an end. So they were doing well and they forgot God. Uh, Amos 3 1 says that they are storing up violence and destruction for themselves. Uh, and that's just kind of what people do when things are going well, isn't it? When, when God blesses people, they forget about Him. It happens time and time again. Uh, those who are blessed in life physically, uh, you know, they might have beautiful skin, secure jobs, nice houses, good investments. Such blessings, they're not a sign that these people are okay with God, are they? It's not a sign that God is pleased with them. It's simply a sign that God is compassionate. In a nutshell, success is a sign of God's compassion, not his approval. Every good thing uh, to those undeserving is because of God's kind hand. So that's our first sign, the sign of success. The day before destruction, they were fabulously successful, and the people would have said, as they do, God, what are you doing? Why are these people so successful when they are so unfaithful? Is God asleep at the wheel? Uh, And the same is true of the second sign, the sign of sin. Because the day before destruction, sin was running rampant. Uh, you would look out and see sin everywhere in God's chosen nation. The sin had, that had gone on and on and on. And you think, why are people getting away with it? Why is God letting this happen? If sin is really as bad as we are told, how come there's so much of it? If God really cared, he'd stop the sin that we see, surely. People surely would have said, God is asleep at the wheel. Chapter 15 um, it, it moves very quickly. It's been called a fast forward to oblivion. Uh, it, it speeds through the last 30 years of Israel before its destruction. Uh, and the sign is that of sin. Two signs are kind of at, at the national level, uh, two physical evidences of this sin. Um, firstly, the way God withdraws his stability from the leadership, from the kings. Uh, and secondly, uh, the stability from the borders as these other empires are raised up and begin to. Uh, come at Israel. 
And so uh, let's look at the first, uh, the sign of sin. Firstly, king chaos, I've called it, because there's an absolute revolving door of kings in Israel. Chapter 15 highlights this. Uh, by the way, it sets out the chapter. It moves very quickly. You can see there, I've got a bit of a list. There are four Israelite kings, and it's just one after the other. And uh, it's kind of also highlighted the stability of Judah. Uh, these four kings are bookended by the two Judean kings, making Judah look like a very stable place. Um, the chapter does read like it's on fast forward. In 20 years, there are four conspiracies. Uh, so 15 verse 10, Shalom conspired against Zechariah. He struck him down publicly. 15 verse 14, Menahem struck down Shalom. Uh, 15 verse 25, Pekah struck down Pekahiah. Uh, to give Scripture's own commentary again on, on this kind of upheaval, let me read from the prophet of Hosea, another prophet who was active at this time, speaking into this situation. Uh, and Hosea speaks about this turnover of, turnover of kings, and he says, On the day of our king, the princes are sick with the heat of wine. There is conspiracy with traitors, for they, their hearts like an oven, draw him into their oven. Their anger smolders all night. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. What great words, what powerful words. Hosea, he's describing these kings, they've got hot hearts. Uh, why? What, what is the cause of this chaos? Well, the prophecy continues into verse 7, saying, All of them are as hot as an oven. They consume their rulers. All of the kings fall. Not one of them calls on me. I think that's the key, of course. They do not call on Yahweh. The leaders of God's people look to their own ambition and power. They don't call on God. They are drunk with their own power. And like the kingdoms of the world, they smolder with ambition, pride, and treachery. It's a very powerful picture. What is the sign of impending destruction? One commentator says, Her own chaos is a sign that God is in the process of destroying her. Now, as I was uh, reading through all this and thinking about its significance, it was hard not to think about our PMs, the revolving door of PMs that we've had. And the whole world kind of laughed at Australia and all of our PMs, especially the UK, they used to laugh at us, but we got them back in the last couple of weeks. Sadly, sadly. Uh, poor old Liz Trust, she only lasted 45 days as the British PM. Um, and I, this is all a little bit mean, but there was a tabloid gag which was well known, uh, and that was, will Truss outlast this lettuce? It was a live video feed uh, put there on the uh, slowly decaying lettuce and a photo of Liz Truss, um, which is it's, it's a bit cruel, isn't it? <laughs> and the whole thing started uh, from a, from a, a piece uh, in The Economist which said that Liz Truss, uh, her grip on power amounted to seven days, or roughly the shelf life of a lettuce, is what this commentator had said. And, uh, well, last week the lettuce emerged victorious after Miss Truss resigned. Her photo was flipped down and the lettuce was crowned the victor. <laughs> well, um, how does all this relate to uh, Second Kings? Well... Uh, don't forget, Israel uh, were God's chosen people. It was a very, a very unique situation. They were in a special covenant relationship with God. Uh, let me be very clear, I'm not, I'm not liking our recent spate of rolling PMs uh, to suggest that destruction's around the corner or anything like that. It's not that simple. 
I don't think our leaders are, are particularly bad at all. In fact, I think if you look at history and even around the world now, our leaders are fantastic. Like, really, you can grumble, but you could not do better uh, if you look around. That doesn't actually get better than that. And so we should actually be very thankful for our leaders, I think. Uh, but the thing that you do notice, it, when you look at our leaders and, then you, and you read Kings, it actually says something about the Israelite kings, the leaders of God's nation. It says that they are no better than the kings of the world, surely is what it's saying. History is littered with treacherous plots to overthrow kings, and here we see God's nation is no better. There is a better way, though. Call upon the Lord. Live under his king, and Israel could call on him directly. And our society can call on him through Christ. And yet the people don't have the heart for God. The kings do not have the heart for God. But there is a better way. And there will come a time in a nation run by King Jesus where in the new creation all will look to him and call upon the Lord's name. But ultimately in this life, our leaders will have hot hearts. Their anger smoldering all night. And yet even in this, God is at work building his kingdom. And so that's our our first sign uh, of sin, which pointed to destruction. The next uh, of Kings uh, 15, the the, the Kings 15 is telling us about, is is the the sign of destruction that is the cycle of sin. It talks of this cycle of sin. Uh, And when you read chapters 14 to 16, I'm sure you've noticed uh, these little repeated refrains about their sinfulness. And there are are two that come up uh, with almost identical wording. Um, The first one is... um, Yet the high places were not taken away. It comes up four times uh, through these two chapters, and indeed throughout all of um, Kings. It's about compromise, uh, syncretism, pluralism, nominalism, to to name some isms. But it's simply God plus religion. It's it's God plus other, other religions. And the repeated phrase in full is, Yet the high places were not taken away. The people continued sacrificing and burning incense on the high places and under every green tree. Israel for years and years uh, uh, went on and on with this kind of half-hearted following of God. The longer it went on, it must have felt like it was okay. It must have felt like it was acceptable. It was just what we did. Uh, Yahweh, surely he must accept this. You can just imagine them thinking, because here they are doing it, and they've been doing it for hundreds of years. If the warnings uh, were true... How come all of these sins could just keep continuing? You just imagine them saying it, can't you? Here we are. The prophets keep telling us there's destructions around the corner, but we've been doing this, having these high places for hundreds of years. Surely the warnings aren't true. It's just kind of the, uh, the false sense of security we get lulled into. It's just somehow, uh, I think it's very much, it's, it's so human, isn't it, to uh, disregard warnings this way. And surely it's a reminder for Christians that uh, if, we, if we compromise in our devotion to God, if we do a bit of Jesus and do a bit of some other God too, well, destruction is coming. That is going to be the sign of destruction. There's no taking it easy when it comes to following Jesus, no adding him in with other things that we want to live for. He demands total devotion, complete sacrifice. There can only be one king of our lives. It has to be Jesus. And so there's a cycle of sin as I said, people keep looking to those false gods. Uh, but next we see the source of sin, with the source of sin, um, not like tomato sauce, but the, the source as in the origin. Uh, because uh, there's another repeated uh, phrase which comes up throughout these chapters. 
Um, not about uh, the repeating of sin, but, but the origin of sin. Um, and it, it's literally this identical uh, verse that comes up four times. Let me read it in full. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, as his fathers had done. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. And so this is the summary of each of these kings throughout this section. And the message is, new king, same sin. New king, same sin. The book of Kings traces the source of uh, this infectious sin to one person, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. He keeps saying it over and over again. It came from this guy, the first king of Israel, came to the throne, introduced these, uh, these idols, and it was there going forward. He was the origin. Israel is going around and around in circles doing the same sin. Israel is spiritually broken. It's in this spin and it can't get out. And even worse, Israel, it was broken from the beginning, from when Jeroboam brought in the idols. During World War II, uh, the Germans had uh, French factories uh, producing for the, for the German war effort. So, uh, of course, in occupied France, uh, and they had these, these factories producing uh, trucks uh, and so on. So, you know, brands like Renault and Citroën uh, were there. But to prevent sabotage, the Germans would split up the production. So they get one factory to do the engine and the other to do the, the chassis and, and so on. Uh, but of course, the, the, the lab at the French underground produced this abrasive and they put it in the hands of these factory workers so that they could, could sabotage. And so a worker might smear a bit of abrasive on some key bearing in the, in the engine um, and, or some other vital part, and the truck would roll off the assembly line, uh, and, yeah, and you know the truck would fire up, it, it, you know, it's all good, and it would head down the road, and it would get about 80 kilometres before mysteriously breaking down. For a stretch of 10 months, 10 months, 90% of the trucks put out by one plant developed the same problem. <laughs> These trucks would get about 80 kilometres. Uh, and Israel, we see, Israel got about 200 years down this line. And yet with both, the problem was there from the beginning. The trucks had an abrasive installed at the factory and Israel's first installed king introduced the sin of idolatry. His sins, they were part of the fabric of the nation as it slowly ground to a halt. And I think the mistake uh, we can make now, um, the things is that uh, we, can, we can let these things creep in early on and they just take on a life of their own. There's a warning there, isn't there? The things that we choose to make a part of our lives that we accept uh, into the future, they're going to have an effect. These sins will remain with us. Think of something like, uh, you know, if, if you're uh, a parent and you're raising kids, it's, I've really been thinking about this, right? Like, the, the, way I, I, the way I raise Charlie now, the examples that I set for him, the lessons I teach him, they're going to have an ongoing effect. Um, but as I thought about it, the reverse applies as well, doesn't it? Because if we hang on day by day, if we are faithful now, if we put in good practices now, it is also going to have a flow-on effect for the rest of our lives. You know, how often do you uh, chat with someone and you say, how did you become a Christian? And I, I've heard this so many times and they'll say something like, oh, you know, I, I've just become a Christian and I, I never thought about God for years and years. But, you know, when I, when I was a kid, I went to, you know, school scripture or something and I learned about God there and he, and he's been with me ever since. Or, you know, like I forgot about him for decades and then and I saw this thing and I remembered that God was there. Like whatever it is. Uh, and so I think the reverse is true as well. I think um, time can have very powerful effects on, on sin and also on faithfulness. 
But our passage, right, so the, these repeated references to the sin and the origin coming from one man, it, it's hard not to think about Adam uh, and Jesus. Uh, as we see, just how disastrous one person can be, uh, so too how wondrous one person can be. And so Romans says, Since by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus. So just as sin and death came from Adam, one person, all of that terribleness, the first man, uh, so too with Jesus, the true king of humanity, will come salvation, eternal life. Well, as we stand back and we think about what Kings is telling us, the sign that destruction was around the corner was ongoing sin. When you see ongoing sin, you can be sure that you are one day before destruction. Uh, and we do get a little taste of it in our passage. As I say, the, 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 final, uh, the final armies will roll in next week in chapter 17, but there's a little taste, which we'll consider uh, super quickly now. Assyria, Assyria is called the, the rod of God's wrath, and they are raised up. Uh, and the account uh, in today's passage is a foretaste of the complete destruction to come. 15 verse 29 says, let me read it out. In the days of Pekah, the king of Israel, Teglath-Belisa, king of Assyria, came and captured Aijon, Abelbeth, Maka, uh, Janaho, Kedesh, Hazor, Gilead, Galilee, and the land of Nephali, and deported the people to Assyria. So Teglath-Belisa uh, was king of Assyria, and uh, I have a bit of a map here of uh, the, all, the list of all the places that are just named in that verse that he took over. And you can see in chapter 14, Israel did really well and they gained all this territory and by chapter 15, they've completely lost it to Assyria. Assyria were this juggernaut. They are huge. You can see on the map there, uh, uh, Israel is like a little dot and Assyria is that huge green area over there. Assyria were huge and we'll, and we'll hear about more about them next week. But God, what, what, what is he saying here? He is saying, if you do not want to be uh, my people, if you don't want me to be a king, well, Syria will be your king. If you don't want to be my people, you are going to be their people. Verse 29 says that they are deported, and the deporting was uh, to assimilate, uh, to disintegrate them. If they didn't want to be gods, they would be nothing as a nation. And so choose your king. We all must choose We either accept God's leadership, accept him as king of our lives uh, and put off sin by his power, or we will be subjected to another. Sin is not the sign of God's judgment. uh, Sorry, sin is a sign of God's judgment to come, not his acceptance is what 2 Kings, I think, teaches us. Sin is a sign of God's judgment to come, not his acceptance. The world looks at God and accuses him of being asleep at the wheel, uh, the world sees the ungodly getting away with sin, so much sin, and, and mistakes it to mean that God doesn't care. But the sure sign of destruction is the sign of sin. For where there is sin, destruction will surely follow. And so look to put off sin. Be washed clean from our sin in Christ. Uh, and, and live striving to put it far behind us. Living faithfully to our compassionate King. Let me pray for God's help. Heavenly Father, we stand back and marvel at how you work in the world, your compassion and holiness 
to punish sin. Help us to live as followers of Jesus, putting off sin, honouring him as our king in all things. In his name we pray. Amen.